Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Today we're going to be talking with my R Street colleague, Ray Lehman, about insurance. Uh, And we caught up with Ray while he was attending a monster truck rally, so you may be able to hear the carnage in the background as we talk. Our guest today is Ray Lehman, who is the Director of Finance, Insurance, and Trade Policy with the R Street Institute, so it's FIT. Mm -hmm. Uh, Welcome to the program, Ray. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this on September 20th. At this point, uh, so we're still, I I say that just because we're still a little bit early in the aftermath of uh, Hurricane Florence, so we don't quite know what the situation will be, but we have some sense. So what what is the, the early indicators as far as how costly a storm that's going to be, particularly compared to some of the other big storms, Harvey, Sandy, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. And Harvey and Sandy are, are fairly good comparisons in terms of what kind of storm it is, um, which is to say, uh, Sandy, what it has in common with Sandy is that it is essentially just a flooding event and very little wind damage. Um, now, some of that, uh, to you know, to to back up a second, flood insurance is primarily a product that comes from a federal agency, the National Flood Insurance Program. You do buy a policy just like you would from a private company, but um, the 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 underwriter that's on the hook is the government, um, and private insurance companies primarily write uh, policies that that cover the wind. They also cover other things like fires and so forth um and then there's yeah we so we do you're absolutely right we do here in texas Mm -hmm. also have a a state created yes storm uh thing too that might make up in the in this discussion but you're right there's also private options which i guess are not so available in the flood context right and and what texas and there is a similar there's a similar uh uh, plan in North Carolina. Both Texas and North Carolina have, in Texas, it's TWIA, the, the Windstorm Association of North Carolina. They have what's called the beach plan, that where the wind portion of your insurance is underwritten um, by a pool of companies. Uh, and ultimately, there is a presumption that if they ran out of money, the taxpayers would, would step in. Um, Right. Beach so, Plan sounds yeah. like a more fun name. Yes. Well, it's mean, yeah. technically like the North Carolina Insurance Underwriting Association, and the Beach Plan is its uh, its nickname. Um, so the the claims we don't know. There's not a lot of claims uh, estimates that have come in so far. The the one that I've seen early on is from Core Logic, and it put claims only from wind and from storm surge so the 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 actual you know those who that only affects the the coast primarily you know some river storm surge but primarily the coast at like three to five billion dollars a billion with a b um which is not i mean that's that's not nothing but that's not an especially large 
Um, but it does not, that does not include uh, flooding from rivers and inland flooding, um, which is going to be most of what the damage is. Now, m a good portion of that damage will not be insured um, because this storm hit areas that typically don't uh, face this kind of flooding. Um, they are not mapped as one in 100, uh, one in 100 year floodplains. Um, so therefore the people who live in them would not have been required to buy flood insurance and overwhelmingly are not buying flood insurance. Uh, I, I looked at this trying to do a back of the envelope and, and in the largest counties in North Carolina, um, which are basically the counties that include uh, Charlotte and Raleigh, um, less than 1% of people who live there have flood insurance. Um, and that's those places flooded uh, tremendously. And so uh, how, what, they're, what those people are going to do uh, to rebuild their lives is going to be an open question. There are some federal assistance programs that are available, but um, they're fairly limited. They mostly take the form of loans. Um, and uh, you, you, it doesn't, you know, get rid of your mortgage. Uh, you, if you take a rebuilding loan, you still have to pay the mortgage that you already had. Uh, so that's still something we're going to see. We don't, we don't know what kind of emergency supplemental disaster assistance might come. But the the insurance claims themselves, I'd say, are look to be less than ten billion dollars total uh, between both flood insurance and private insurance. Um, some of the the bigger claims might come from commercial insurance for for companies that are, you know, if you insured business interruption, for instance, there there are going to be entire counties where essentially no business is going to be conducted for quite some time. Okay, so let's talk about this. Delve a little bit more into the the federal flood insurance <laughs> program. Yeah, uh, you know, as you as you noted. Uh, if, if you want to insure your house uh, against a fire or whatever, you get a private policy. Mm -hmm. Even with windstorm, a lot of people get private policies. So, I mean, why is it that we why have flood? federal flood program? Yeah. Uh, you know, how did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. So, it's, it's, there's a lot of contingent history here. Um, first thing to understand is that insurance historically was a local business. Um, most insurance was underwritten by a very local company, you know, often just writing in one county. Um, and there's still a lot of that there, especially in the Midwest. There are still a lot of what are called county mutuals. Um, and the differences between flood and, say, fire as a risk, when a, when a river floods, um, everyone in that area is hit at the same time. So there's a correlation of risk. Um, when there's a fire, well, it's not impossible for a fire to go from one structure to another. It does. We have not tended to have that same kind of correlation. Um, and fire was an easier risk for local companies to underwrite than, than flood. They did underwrite flood. Uh, I don't want to give too boring, long and boring a history here. In, in the 1930s, there were some Mississippi River floods that were catastrophic. And that led most private companies to stop underwriting flood uh, altogether. Um, then in the 50s and early 60s, we had a few major hurricanes um, that left a lot of people who were not insured for flood 
um, you know, uh, not to use too too terrible a pun, but high and dry. They they didn't have anything, and we provided them uh, through the federal government with post disaster assistance, which is still something that happens. The idea that that went into creating the National Flood Insurance Program which is 50 years ago um, as part of the same bill that created the Department of Housing and Urban Development was there was a deal that was going to be struck. Um, the deal was this. These communities that are exposed to flood need to invest in mitigation. They need to build dams. They uh, need to create you know, land use ordinances. In some cases, some people's properties may need to be elevated. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna monitor that, and in exchange, we're gonna give them a cheap, uh, sub actuarially based, uh, less than it would be less than the actual risk uh, insurance product that they will pay us something for, and that something will at least pro help to prefund the loss because the the loss is going to come anyway, and financing it through these giant post-disaster bailout packages was not ideal. That was the idea originally. Doug and I are both lawyers. Uh, we did that because we wouldn't have to do any math. Uh, but my understanding of how the actuarial rates works is that if you have a property that's expected to sustain $100,000, there's a 10% chance of it getting $100,000 worth of damage mm -hmm. a year. For 10 years, you yeah. know, that would be like, uh, you know, you would have a $10,000 policy, give or take, to insure that, Pro probably a little more because there's administrative or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, so you need, if you had a, if someone was selling you a policy, hey, we're going to, uh, we're going to sell you a policy for $7,000 premium a year or 5000 or whatever, that would be below the actuarial level that the company would need in order to be able to meet those claims over the long term? As a, a quick and dirty sum, summation of actuarial science, sure, that works. It's a little more complicated than that, but yeah, I mean, essentially you need to uh, charge, uh, if, in flood, it's, we're, we're usually dealing with a one in 100 year chance. You know, so right. you have a 1% chance in any given year of a flood if you're in a, a significant flood zone. Um, and there's going to be, you know, divergence from that over time. And so you right. charge a risk load and sometimes you offload that risk to reinsurance. But right. more or less, what we're saying is you're charging enough that you can actually pay your claims, the claims that you expect to face. Right. Um, so it was it was set up so that it wasn't that much and nor did it have any distinction between different kinds of risks. If you were on the beach uh, with a house that is literally sitting on sand facing the ocean, or if you were on top of the mountain, you paid the same rate. Um, it didn't make any distinctions on those things. Uh, the only distinction it made on, on how much you paid was how much coverage you bought. You could buy up to the limit, or you could buy less uh, if you you know didn't want, didn't need to if your house wasn't as expensive, or you didn't need to insure all of it. Um, so that's how it was originally set up in the '70s. We started creating, tried to segment the risk a little bit more, uh, created risk maps. Which, and and uh, let me just uh, yeah. sorry one other what one other question. So yeah, you know it seems to me that 
uh, if you were going to set up a program like this, mm -hmm. uh, it seems like it would be common sense that you would want the rates to match the risk. And mm -hmm. the, if from the beginning the premiums, you know, were, uh, the rates were below that, yeah. was that, you know, uh, was that something that they did intentionally, understanding that they would later have to come out and supplement it? Or did they just not understand how it works? Was it, the, you know, the, it was the 70s, so everybody was <laughs> high? What, like, right. So it was a combination of two things. It was that the original idea was not for it to be self-financing. Um, that the, the original idea of it was simply to provide uh, encouragement to participate um, and that a lot of the participation was simply each community has to join the national flood insurance program and to, to join the national flood insurance program you have to comply with um, the mitigation standards of the, of the national flood insurance program so that's an investment by that community and the cheap insurance is the trade-off like now you're you have access to cheap insurance um, and the insurance at least provides you you in the community a certainty that when there's a disaster the government will pay your claim um, whereas before you had to rely on the political process of the government appropriating some sort of disaster relief after a storm the other issue was that we didn't have a lot of claims data for flood uh, it's a more complicated risk um, and and particularly large floods are less common than something like a fire or, you know, than the mortality tables you have in life insurance or the, the you know, auto insurance act, the auto accidents, uh, which happen all the time, major floods, uh, they vary enormously in terms of their effects. And it, it you don't, you didn't necessarily have a, a huge backlog of, of information to know what an appropriate rate would even be. Um, so it was simpler to administer it by not making any distinctions among properties. And also the idea was you were going to subsidize them. That was on purpose. And it was to, to, uh, to compensate them for the expense of, of investing in mitigation. Um, we did shortly after the program was created in, uh, create risk maps that, uh, basically grouped people into different segments, like three large segments where you were exposed to, to storm surge because you're on a coast. Um, you were not exposed to storm surge, but you were exposed to flooding, usually meant you were in a river valley uh, or you were just a little bit beyond the coast, um, or you weren't exposed to either and you were relatively low risk. Um, and so one problem that arose is those people were charged risk-based rates. The people who had already joined the program in the first few years, their rates never changed. Um, and it was assumed that over time, uh, those policies would all kind of like get written off uh, as we all transition to this new world with the rate maps. Um, but the way the law was interpreted first by HUD, which was the original administrator of the program, and then by FEMA, was that any property that had joined the flood insurance program before its rate map was created um, was grandfathered, and they never had to pay risk-based rates. Um, and that included uh, properties that joined the program 
after there were maps, there just weren't a map of their particular region. Um, then the other problem is the maps need to be updated because uh, flood risks change. They change not just because uh, the risk itself changes, which does happen because we have rising sea levels, we have higher you know, rainfall totals than we used to, um, and, but also because, and this is the major thing, ground cover. When you develop an area that used to not have roads or properties on it, that shifts where the water goes. The water needs to drain somewhere. Uh, and once you put down pavement, um, it you, the areas that it used to drain into the soil, um, now it can't. Uh, and it's going to go somewhere else. So you're going to need to adjust your, your flood map to account for that. Well, that process is uh, uh, really slow. Um, there are maps that are, that are 30 or 40 years out of date. Um, and look nothing like what the actual risk is. Uh, and even when you are updated, um, if your designation changed, if you were in a low-risk zone and you got moved to a high-risk zone, your insurance rate doesn't change. So these are basically contributing to the reason that the National Flood Insurance Program has, since 2004, had to borrow $40 billion from the federal taxpayers, and it has only repaid about $3 billion of that. Um, so that it is clearly an unsustainable program as currently structured. Its rates do not uh, match its risk, and uh, it needs, you know, more or less to be uh, taken apart and, and reconstructed or just simply put uh, into the private market. Forty billion in debt—is that what you said? Or they borrowed? Well, they've borrowed forty billion. So they're currently about twenty billion in debt. Um, that is because they paid back about three billion of the forty billion they borrowed, and then last year Congress decided to erase sixteen billion dollars. And okay. they said, "Forget about it. You don't have to pay us." That. Yeah. As I, uh, as I mentioned, math is not my strong suit, but it seems yes. like you borrowed forty, you yeah. paid back three. Yes. How did you get to twenty? Yeah. And the answer is we, uh, we yes. did it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That, yeah. That's the answer. Uh, okay. And I guess, uh, and all, and that's before anything that's, that comes from Florence or, yeah. uh, future storms, because I guess they, they lose money every year, perhaps. Uh, the CBO, uh, did a report late last year that said on an annual basis, the national flood insurance program should be expected to lose $1.4 billion. That, that would be a typical year um, or an average year. So um, if you are losing $1.4 billion and you're already $20 billion in debt, clearly you can't pay back any of that $20 billion because you're just going further into debt. Right. Yeah, it's, it's not a great business plan. No. Uh, okay. Uh, so how do we fix it? <laughs> yeah. So there's a few things. Um, there's there is obviously the issue of of trying to get the rates up to uh, where they need to be. Um, there's also the particular problem of repetitive lost properties. So about two percent of um, the properties in the program account for between a quarter and a third of the claims. Um, so we would like to move them more quickly to risk-based rates, and there are proposals uh, to do things like 
once you get beyond a certain amount, either number of catastrophic claims or a dollar figure that has been paid out to you, uh, then you won't be eligible for the program anymore. Um, and you'll have to get private coverage. Um, there is uh, a program on the books, it was created in 2004, that intended to address repetitive lost properties by buying them out. Um, that over after a certain number of claims, you would be extended an offer uh, to buy out your property and would convert it to open space, basically. Um, there are a few problems with that. One is that it's, it's voluntary. Um, so lots of people don't want to move and you can't uh, force them without using eminent domain. And, and thus far, that has not been a, a path that communities have taken. Um, the other is there tends to be beyond what, uh, what happens with individual property owners, local communities do not love this, this project because it means that they lose taxable properties from the rolls and we propose replacing them with nothing. Um, so that's not their favorite thing. And so, you know, you get mayors and, and city councils who, who are very resistant when NFIP comes in and, and proposes uh, buying out properties, uh, but not paying the taxes on those properties. Um, so that those are some things that have been discussed in the past. What is increasing, uh, uh, yeah. Just, a, just on repetitive lost yeah. properties, yeah. Uh, reminds me. I, so I did, I lived in Florida for a couple years. I was in Pensacola, Florida, 2004 to 2006. Yeah. Uh, which was when I first when I moved there, my mom uh, was a little bit worried about hurricanes, and I, you know, uh, reassured her that actually being in the Panhandle, you know, the hurricanes there were not that common, and yeah. you know, the storms have to like swoop around the the whole boot mm -hmm. of the state. And of course, it was only about three weeks after <laughs> I arrived there that, that yeah, that was Charler uh, uh, Ivan, right? Uh, yeah, Hurricane yeah. Ivan. Uh, so I, you know, got a, I got a three week vacation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But one of the things that I remember from that is, you know, people, it's very nice there. You go down to the beach uh, and then there was kind of a, a bridge road that drove out onto a barrier island. Mm -hmm. And then there was another bridge, another smaller bridge road, road, road that went out onto even a, a smaller barrier island. And people were building houses on these things, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and they would get knocked down by the storm, and they rebuild it, and then get knocked down again. And it, it always it seemed a little baffling to me yeah. why people would want to keep rebuilding there. I guess one reason is that the the insurance isn't really costing yeah. them the full amount of the risk or whatever. But mm -hmm. uh, I I I I don't even want to contemplate how much uh, some of those properties might have cost. Uh, the the flood insurance program over the year just with sure. repeat claims yeah yeah and, and you know we have uh, taken other approaches um, uh, over the years uh, back in the eighties and early eighties uh, Ronald Reagan signed and John Chafee sponsored the Coastal Barrier Resources Act um, which set up a system of uh, mostly barrier islands and and coastal wetlands around the East Coast and the Gulf Coast. And then later we added parts of the 
Great Lakes and, and uh, Puerto Rico, uh, and said in these zones, which are currently relatively pristine, uh, not developed, um, you can't get any federal subsidies. So you can't get federal flood insurance. You can't get uh, DOT to come out and build a road. You can't get new communications towers. Um, so uh, that is, you know, we've always held up as a, a great conservative approach to an environmental issue is like not spending money for things that are environmentally destructive. Um, so, and that has had some some impact. We have saved money, and I, I like to point to it uh, when talking about Harvey, because if you look at where Harvey uh, made landfall, it's around Port Aransas. You know, it did its its flooding in in Houston, but um, where it made landfall was in part of the CBRA, um, and that did not get developed um, in part because it it couldn't get federal subsidies. Now, it's not the whole of the story and uh, as a Floridian I, I have to note that part of it is that our beaches are much nicer than Texas beaches <laughs> and so, and so uh, we have nicer sand um, e over here east of the Mississippi so uh, that that is part of why Texas beaches don't look like Florida beaches but nonetheless I, the Coastal Barrier Resources System is also part of the answer. So you, you talked a little bit about the, uh, the idea of of once you start paving over everything, that it makes it difficult to uh, that the, the land doesn't absorb the the, the runoff. Mm -hmm. And in Houston, we, we really do yeah. love our, our concrete. How big of a factor was that? Because uh, I've also seen people say, uh, you know, the uh, what what maybe is not being taken into account is that every one of these freeways sort of becomes its own channel and water, mm -hmm. you know, uh, draining out that way. It is it is definitely a, an issue, um, particularly an issue in terms of being able to assess the risk, um, which if the maps don't reflect where water is likely to flow, um, then there those those higher risks can't be reflected in in insurance prices. Um, and in the private in the in the commercial insurance market, private insurance has long been the major way that you uh, in, insure your property at, for flood. Um, there, there is there are businesses po business policies through the NFIP, but their limits are like five hundred thousand, which is a fairly small enterprise, um, particularly if, and it doesn't cover business interruption, which is the number one thing you probably need coverage for. Um, so those uh, the, those risks are not are not really being reflected of, of changing land. Houston also has some issues with its uh, soil. Even beyond that, its its soil is is uh, uh, is fairly clay uh, heavy and, and doesn't absorb water uh, quite like um, you know some other areas. I heard somebody recently say that uh, uh, the the grade. In the greater Houston area, is, uh, it's sort of like putting two pennies under the leg of a table. Uh, I, don't, I don't know how accurate that yeah, is, yeah, yeah. but uh, but yeah, I think that's probably a factor too. It's pretty flat here. Right. So what we what we uh, have been working on, and, and there there's been some uh, some progress in this area, is uh, helping to encourage along a private market, um, which right now nationwide about. 15% of the premiums that go towards purchasing flood insurance uh, are private flood insurance through these common, there has always been uh, what's called excess policies. So 
the NFIP standard homeowners policy covers up to $250,000 of loss and then to the structure and then another, you can get up to another $100,000 for your contents. Um, that doesn't satisfy some, you know, higher net worth properties. So you would buy a, a, an umbrella policy or an excess policy to ride on top uh, from a private carrier that's been around for a long time. Um, business policies, as I mentioned, have been around for a long time. What is relatively new are first dollar um, private flood insurance that competes directly with the NFIP. Um, and it has come into the market primarily because of changes in how insurance works. Now we do have national and global insurance companies. And those national insurance and global insurance companies are themselves reinsured um, by global reinsurance companies. Um, so there's a much broader risk sharing around the world um, that makes it possible to insure larger costs, larger risks. Um, and the data has gotten better. Uh, the modeling of flood has gotten better. And they are generally interested in in taking on, there are a lot of companies anyway, that are interested in taking on flood as a, a new business line. The impediments to that um, are mostly bureaucratic. Uh, the first is that the main reason people buy flood insurance is because they have a mortgage that requires them to buy flood insurance. And the banking regulators have not been forthcoming about promulgating rules governing what policies count as flood insurance as equivalent to the NFIP and what do not. Um, so we've been waiting on them for six years to come out with a binding rule and it's, there's been things that have been introduced and then withdrawn a few times. Uh, there's legislation that Jeb Henserling sponsored last year that passed the House that would uh, kind of put this question on the state insurance commissioners. Um, it has not gone anywhere in the Senate, and we don't especially expect it to in, the, in these last few months of the session. Um, there's other issues. There was an issue with uh, if you, the National Flood Insurance Program has a, a, a what's called a write-your-own program where private companies get paid commissions to market NFIP policies, and there was a non-compete clause where if you if you got paid from the NFIP the market one of their policies you could not sell your own private flood insurance policy but actually in the last couple of months that's been that's been repealed so that's that's a positive step and then um, what what you have left that companies really would like is for FEMA to share the data that they have on flood losses and FEMA's been pretty jealously uh, guarding that so we might need uh, legislation that would force them to do that. So there, there was a bill <laughs> passed, I guess it was like five, six years ago now, maybe mm -hmm. even longer. Uh, and I, I always get confused between the first bill and the second bill. Yeah, but what, right. One of them was Bigger Waters. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Bigger Waters was passed in 2012. Yeah. Um, and and uh, for our listeners, I should be clear. The, the legislation was sponsored by uh, Bigger and Waters to yes. Congress people. It's not, it wasn't just yes. a joke. 
you know. No, well, the second bill is is funnier uh, in in that regard. So the first one was Judy Biggert, who is a Republican from uh, Illinois, and Maxine Waters, who you know, pretty well known, the Democrat from California, um, sponsored that initial bill, which uh, addressed a lot of the raid issues, uh, at least for some time. To uh, it would force all these subsidized policies gradually raise their rates until they were up to where they should be. Um, it would also uh, address those whose rate, change, rate factors have changed, but their rate didn't change. Um, but uh, there was a lot of scare. After it passed through Congress, which happened uh, only because it was attached to the same bill that included um, the Restore Act, uh, so Mary uh, uh, Landry, you may recall from Louisiana, uh, was a, a major uh, proponent of these of the Restore Act and a major opponent of Bigger Waters. And yeah, and the, and the, Rest- the, the Restore Act uh, for anyone who doesn't know that that has to do with the Deepwater yeah. Horizon oil spill right. and basically making sure that states got money yeah. from the, the fines and penalties of that. Right. So yeah, the five, the five Gulf states divvied right. up the, the BP money. Right. Um, so they obviously there was a big incentive to pass that because yeah. uh, they wanted the states wanted the money. Right. So by ta- attaching those two things together, um, that uh, kind of forced, you know, Mary Landrieu in particular, but, uh, you know, there were a few other holdouts as well, including Bill Nelson. Um, to vote for a bill that did include the, these flood insurance reforms, which they otherwise opposed. Um, and then as soon as it passed, they went to work very quickly. Um, the interests that opposed it, n- namely the home builders, uh, went to work with undermining it. And they were ultimately successful. And so in 2014, a second bill passed uh, that it kept some of the uh, uh, the reforms from the 2012 bill. It repealed other ones altogether. Um, that one was sponsored again by Maxine Waters. Um, so she sponsored the original bill and then sponsored the bill that repealed it. Uh, and her co-sponsor then was Michael Grimm. So it had the name Grimm Waters. <laughs> Grimm, Grimm Waters sounds like one of those low-budget horror movies. <laughs> You know, like it's in your, there's a storm that, there's a hurricane that comes through, it's flooded. And then, you know, there's like some maniacs that escape from a prison and they're, you know, the movie writes itself. Yeah. So, so Grimwaters um, repealed a lot of the good work that had been done in 2012. There was an unintended consequence of Grimwaters though, was that uh, because they, they didn't want to have a budget score. um, And this was... Since you were going to, you know, now not the original bill was getting rid of subsidies and, and bringing these uh, policies up to, to their risk-based rates, uh, the new bill was going to reinstate the subsidies. Um, that meant there was a cost to the federal government because Congress would otherwise have collected this additional premium. Um, so to make up for that, uh, the bill assessed charges on every policy. Um, and those charges were, you know, to directly offset the lost revenue that would have come in. The, the thing that has happened though, is 
because of those charges, um, uh, particularly inland policies that did, were not uh, particularly highly subsidized. Um, in fact, we're cross-subsidizing the, the coastal policies already. Now they are actually like those people, most people in the NFIP are paying more than they should. Um, they are paying more than actuarial rates. And those who are subsidized are paying much, much less than they should. But they are a minority of the program. So now uh, private companies who have started writing flood insurance can, can offer an attractive product because they can go to these policies that are being, you know, these people who are being charged, uh, these, these basically cross-subsidy charges, um, and say, we can offer you something cheaper. In fact, um, and the, the actuarial firm Milliman did a study last year that found in in Texas and Louisiana and Florida um, something like seventy to ninety. I think in Texas it was ninety percent of policyholders actually would get a cheaper product in the private market than from the NFIP. Uh, so that uh, they didn't intend this, but they have actually kind of created or helped to you know really like supercharge a private insurance market that now we can compete we can compete once if you're going to charge more than you have to then we can absolutely compete with that so uh in terms of the future of reform is it is it hopeless mm. we are uh, our current status uh, of, of reform legislation is that the program is going to have its statutory authorization expire in at the end of november um that is the same day uh, that the hurricane season expires, but it also is notably after the election. Um, so the first thing you'd need to know is who won, <laughs> and that that would make uh, that would certainly influence uh, what what any final bill looks like um, if the right. Democrats if, were yeah if they were to take one or both houses of Congress, then certainly we're not going to get a bill this year because they will exert uh, maximum influence to, to just you know, wait out that last month and when, until they get the gavel. I have a question for you about flood insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, every time that there's a major flood, uh, we've all seen that the, the sharks get into the local highways. So mm -hmm. if you're bitten <laughs> by a shark during a right. flood, does flood insurance cover that? No. No, there's no no liability components of flood insurance. Um, you would you would have to. I mean, probably you're going to to just your regular health insurance at that point. Um, if you were on the job, that you can go to workers' comp. Uh, if you happen to be on someone else's property, then you can uh, that can attach their homeowners insurance. So I mentioned Grim Waters sounded mm -hmm. like movie earlier. Uh, so, you know, go out on a lighter note. D do you have any favorite disaster movies and or insurance themed movies? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that I don't know that there are a lot of flood insurance themed movies. There's some life insurance themed ones, but right. Maybe uh, I'm gonna, I'm going to go with one of each. So, um, uh, in terms of insurance themed movies, my favorite is uh, Cedar Rapids. Uh, starring Ed Helms, which he played, 
Is that yeah. like Ann Hash or something? Is she? He he uh, he plays an insurance agent. In fact, the entire movie takes place at uh, an insurance agent's convention that I'm pretty sure I've attended. Uh, <laughs> they changed the name slightly, but it is an organization I'm very familiar with, and uh, and so uh, I've been on at essentially this convention before. Uh, it's a very good movie. I I endorse it heartily. Kind of a black comedy. Um, then, in terms of disaster, this might be uh, this might be stretching the the definition a little, but it is an Austin-based filmmaker. So you know, for your podcast, I think this is appropriate. That would be Take Shelter, um, uh, starring the great Michael Shannon, which is yeah, you know, you know, a movie about a man who is you know has visions of a coming catastrophe, uh, and whether or not those visions are being communicated to him uh, by some divine power or just uh, or the product of his own mind is pretty much the whole plot. Yeah, that's a, that's a great movie. Uh, although they, in that case, it's not entirely clear what the, the nature of the disaster is, but right. it seems yeah. like the sort of thing that you would not be able to interpret. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, Doug, do you have anything else? So uh, in preparing for the uh, the show today, uh, I went to a friend uh, as a potential spy to see if I could get some uh, interesting backstory to, to maybe give you some uh, some some off the wall question, and she mm-hmm. completely failed me. Okay. Um, and so, as retribution, um, do you have any? You know, tell us a little bit what it's like working with Shoshana Weissman. <laughs> so I actually hired Shoshana. Um, I was at the time head of our editorial and communications department. Um, and uh, it is always a curious thing. Um, we, we, I am uh, notable in our street as not being an originalist, um, so that, that frustrates her greatly. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm also, um, you know, a cranky older uh, Gen X person who does not uh, always get memes or... Uh, millennial lingo, but uh, you know, I, I try to keep an open mind about all of that, and and the, one must communicate in the language of the people. <laughs> yeah, the the thing that no one really understands about Shoshana mm-hmm. is that in real life she actually has this deep baritone voice, <laughs> and yeah, the. The, the voice that you hear when she you know does media appearances or whatever is it's a complete act. Mm-hmm. Yep, next, absolutely. Next you're gonna tell me she's blonde. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's her natural hair color. Right. <laughs> Ray, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me.